0: So we've been looking at this relationship between mindfulness and the Brahma practices as tools for reducing the mind's tendency to proliferate into strong self-identification and the consequent suffering that comes from that because as we've been exploring this clinging to a fixed sense of self is a powerful source of dukkha because it's stressful and it's painful to have to keep constructing and reconstructing and protecting this sense of me at the center of the universe. And as you've been discovering too, when we can uh, hold this sense of self more lightly or even at times let go of it completely, we have a glimpse of the ease and the happiness that all of the Buddha's teachings are pointing to. So there's a direct relationship then between anatta, not self, and nibbana. Nibbana or nirvana being the goal, the ultimate aim that this whole path of practice is pointing to. However, for many people this term nibbana, even more so than the term anatta, is a source of a lot of confusion and misunderstanding, a lot of challenges. So I would like to start with just sharing a few different uh, reflections on Nibbana from a few different teachers, starting with the American monk Ajahn Sumedho, who some of you may know was the one of the foremost Western disciples of Ajahn Cha, the Thai forest master from the last century. So Ajahn Sumedho says, A difficulty with the word Nibbana is that its meaning is beyond the power of words to describe. It is essentially undefinable. Another difficulty is that many Buddhists see Nibbana as something unobtainable, as so high and so remote that we're not even worthy to try for it. Or we use Nibbana as a goal as an unknown, undefined something that we should somehow try to attain. Most of us are conditioned in this way. We want to attain or achieve something that we don't have now. So nibbana is looked at as something that if you work hard and keep the sila, ethical conduct, meditate diligently, maybe become a monastic... Um, devote your life to practice, then your reward might be that eventually you attain nibbana. even though we're not even sure what that is. Ajahn Chah would use the words, quote, the reality of non-grasping as his definition for nibbana. realizing the reality of non-grasping. That helps to put it in a context because the emphasis on awakening Is on it sorry, the emphasis is on awakening to how we grasp and hold on, even to words like nibbana or Buddhism or practice or sila or whatever. So as we've been exploring through this whole course, the sense of self is one very core area where we tend to cling or grasp. It creates suffering. And letting go of this clinging, at least temporarily. Is in the Theravada tradition recognizes the first of four distinct stages of awakening. So in the Pali canon, awakening or enlightenment is experienced as a gradual process and one that happens, as I just said, in these four distinct stages. And the first stage is known as stream entry and it's described as occurring when there's a direct touching into Nibbana. And this momentary realization of Nibbana is said to eradicate three fetters. The fetter of self-view, the fetter of clinging to rites and rituals, and the fetter of skeptical doubt. So over the centuries... The, since the time of the Buddha, there's been a lot of debate about what exactly each of these three fetters refers to. There's also been a lot of debate about what gets eradicated at the next three stages of awakening. So I'm going to dodge that whole question. I'm not even going to name what the other three stages are. If you really need to know, you can Google Wikipedia for stages of enlightenment and you'll get the technicalities there. I don't want to go into it in too much detail because we could easily get bogged down in a whole lot of speculation that's not particularly practical. So what I'd rather do is explore just this first, highlight the relationship between this letting clinging to self-view, that fetter is what's released at first stage. So this connection then between insight into anatta, not self, and experiencing nibbana. And again, just to reinforce, it's not the sense of self itself that is the problem. It's the clinging to, grasping, identifying with it. That is what we want to release. So it's about seeing clearly that what we take to be real, fixed, solid, permanent, and under my control, is in reality, as Albert Einstein has said, an optical delusion of consciousness. So this understanding, he's actually quite brilliant, so I want to read you the more of the quote that that came from. You may have heard it, but I think it's worth reading again. A human being is part of a whole, called by us the universe a part limited in time and space. One experiences oneself, one's thoughts and feelings, as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of one's consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. So that's pretty astounding, really. Albert Einstein, the Bodhisattva, (laughs) talking about compassion for the whole of creation. And it's this... Deepening compassion that um, supports the release of clinging and vice versa. And in a similar way, the Thai female meditation, I was going to say master, but maybe that's not quite the right term. We need a gender neutral term for mastery. She was a very highly revered female Dharma teacher in Thailand in the 20th century. And you can find transcriptions of her talks on Dharma Seed. She was very much, um, as Ajahn Chah says, studying the book of the heart, so very much about one's own immediate experience. She says, your study of the Dharma has to be a study inside, not a study of written words or spoken words. It has to be a study of the mind, pure and simple, so that it will know its own features and characteristics while it maintains its normalcy or mon- maintains itself in emptiness, an emptiness that doesn't latch on to anything. So when the mind is embroiled, if you latch onto the idea that my mind is embroiled, or if when the mind is empty, you latch onto that idea that my mind is empty, both of these are equal in that no matter what you latch onto, you have to suffer. So no matter how things change, if you correctly know the truth of the Buddha's statement, sabbe, dhamma, anatta, all phenomena are not self, you'll simply be able to let go. Perhaps for some of you that's still hard to get a sense of what this term nibbana is pointing to. And for myself, although I have some understanding that nibbana is the deepest possible freedom of heart and mind, what brings that goal into the present moment and makes it something practicable is the definition of nibbana as the mind that's free from greed, free from hatred, free from delusion, which you might remember are the three afflictive energies that we were exploring a few weeks ago. So greed, hatred and delusion are these various ways that we cling to or resist or ignore our experience. And when these three energies are absent, we experience nibbana. So this is one definition of nibbana from the Anguttara Nikaya. Enraptured with lust, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed, With mind ensnared, people aim at their own ruin, at the ruin of others, at the ruin of both, and they experience mental pain and grief. But if lust, anger and delusion are given up, one aims neither at one's own ruin, nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both, and they experience no mental pain and grief. Thus is Nibbana visible in this life, immediate, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. So one aspect of that quote that I appreciate is that it points to the benefits of this practice not just for ourselves, but for others too. Because when the mind is freed from greed, hatred, and delusion, we protect ourselves and others from ruin So there's an ethical and an altruistic dimension to Nibbana, one that's perhaps not always so clear when we hear it expressed as emptiness or non-grasping. And with that particular understanding of Nibbana, it's possible to have a momentary taste of freedom whenever the mind is temporarily released from these afflictive energies. And especially on retreat. These moments are probably more common than we might realize. Partly because, as neuroscientists have found, our minds do have this inherent negativity bias. So we tend to put a lot more emphasis on what's difficult, painful, challenging, wrong, bad, and so on. And we might not even recognize those moments that are pleasant or easeful or equanimous, balanced, neutral. So most of us do need to train ourselves to pay equal amounts of attention to what's easeful, beneficial, and so on. In other words, when greed, hatred, and delusion are absent. And in fact, those of you who are familiar with the Satipatthana Sutta, you will know the third foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of mind. The instructions are exactly that to open up the field of our awareness, to look very directly at our mental activity, paying attention to thoughts, emotions, moods, mind states, and to notice, without assessing, judging, analyze, or struggling, to notice one knows a lustful mind to be lustful, and a mind without lust to be without lust. One knows an angry mind to be angry, and a mind without anger to be without anger. One knows a deluded mind to be deluded, and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. And it goes on to explore quite a few different mind states, but the pattern is always the same, to notice when something's present, to notice when it's absent. So there's this, idea of balance built in we're not fixating on all the ways that we're doing it wrong and so on you may have noticed too that the language is very impersonal it does not say notice when you are angry or even notice when your mind is angry it says a mind noticing a mind with anger, a mind without anger so there's no ownership of this process whatsoever So at this stage in the practice, we're simply noticing if any of these three unwholesome energies are present or not. And again, I want to highlight the or not part because we do tend to fixate so much on when they're present. And the training in the higher stages of the practice is really getting used to those more subtle and refined states when the more coarse afflictive energies have diminished. And as we start to become familiar with how the body and the heart and the mind feel when those harmful energies are absent, we start to have these uh, micro-moments of freedom. And we can think of these tiny pauses in the stream of clinging, grasping and craving as actually being moments of temporary nirvana. So some of you have heard me quote Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was yet another Thai forest or not a forest master. He was a meditation master, again from the last century. And he describes our practice as being a process of continually orienting to those moments of temporary nirvana until they become converted to what he calls complete nibbana. So he says, Temporary nirvana nourishes all sentient beings. If defilements were with us day and night without ceasing, who could ever stand them? Living beings would either die or become insane first and then die. One survives because there are periods when the fires of defilements do not burn. Periodical nirvana keeps us all alive and well and is a nourishing condition, normal to life. Why don't we know or feel thankful for this kind of nirvana? Fortunately, it is our instinct to acquire it. Whatever has any heart and mind will look for periods when the defilements or strong desires are absent. Our instincts inherently have Such a quality, that is to say, we instinctively go in search of spans of time when the mind is free from defilements or desire. Whenever this happens, a little nirvana always comes in. And the phenomena will continue until one learns how to convert it into permanent or complete nirvana. So with this understanding, Nirvana is not something lofty or remote to be experienced in some imagined far distant future. It's actually available in moments, even right here, right now, when we remember to let go of craving. And then we can experience Nirvana as realizing the reality of non-grasping, as Ajahn Chah calls it. So that's Maybe quite a lot, enough to take in for now. I'd like to give us just a, a short break because we can have time for a more relaxed uh, tea and cake afterwards. So suggest we just take maybe five minutes to refresh the body. But before you go, perhaps find yourself a new partner to work with. If there's anyone you haven't worked with yet. Uh, Find them and then set yourselves up around the room so that when we come back, we can get started. Thanks for your attention.